0: You're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, here we are at the end of John chapter 6. Someone write this down, huh? We, may, If we make it through today, you get a gold star. That's a big if though. So here we are. So thank you for staying with me as we make our way through this wonderful journey together as we study each and every verse of John chapter 6 and John overall. So the Apostle John tell us why he wrote this book so that we might believe. That's the reason he said, in the Son of God, Jesus. And in these first six chapters, John has described who Jesus is as the Christ and how we can believe and what belief in Jesus means and what, well, what saving faith really means. And well for this final week of John 6, here's the thing I Think where we need to go. Since John six is such a long chapter, since we've carefully concentrated on each verse, I want us to go back and look at the entire chapter, like the the main the main chapter's meaning about how we can have a relationship with Jesus. Like we're going to put a bow on chapter 6. Does that make sense? We're going to look at the whole main meaning. So let me see if I can set something up for us to think about here. Uh, Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out, by the way. John chapter 6. Many of your Bibles, you tell me, have started to fall open to John 6. Praise God for that. So uh, let's see if we can get the setting here. The general philosophy of the world says that men and women, I'm talking humanity, all of us, are basically good at heart. Although that there are some things that we do are bad things, they would say our nature as humanity is basically good, but they would add, but no one's perfect. However, it's clear to them that there are some people that do bad things, very bad things. So to combat to combat those bad things this philosophy says when people do those things bad things it must be because there's something missing or wrong in their environment that they currently live in or they were brought up in will you will you agree with that that's kind of the world's philosophy the belief system is what drives the way our society makes decisions how we try to deal with things that we see as evil things like murder Poverty, violence, racism, injustice, man, you name it. And certainly as Christians, we can all agree that these things are all bad stuff, evil stuff. Society, their thought process is that if we can create systems that will give people good foundation in life, like schools and hospitals and better families then people will be finally happy and the world will be a a peaceful place, a wonderful place to live that we can eliminate the world's problems, created, kind of create a little heaven on earth here. And we see this philosophy is morphed to say, well, the reason people do bad things is they're not happy. And if we can make people truly happy, I mean happy within themselves, All the bad things will stop that bad people do. So the belief system of the world nowadays is whatever you think will make you happy then, then you do that. And whatever you desire to do in your heart, that is good because that will make you happy. So you hear things like follow your heart, follow what you think is best. On the other hand, orthodox, traditional, old school Christian thought on this Well, it's the exact opposite. And that thought or belief is that people are not good at heart, that they are in fact evil at the core, that their desires, all of them, are jacked up. And although we may do things that we consider good, the Bible tells us that they are as filthy rags in the eyes of God because we do them with the wrong motive to glorify ourselves. Now, let me be clear. It's not that the Bible, Bible-believing Christians say that they don't want to do good things for society. That's not it at all. In fact, if you study history for any length of time, you'll find that schools, hospitals, hospice care, the ending of slavery, the ending of child labor, the ending of debtor's prison, uh, feeding the hungry, the fight against abortion, the fight against AIDS, all have their roots in Christian organizations and hoping and to honor and glorify God in the way they live their lives. Clear, tish, clear Christian teaching from Scripture is that people are sinful at the core, basically. Now, I have to warn you, there's a decidedly Christian, American Christian kind of brand of Christianity that denies this doctrine. They don't hold to what the Bible says. They have created a doctrine that's clearly from the United States, that matches what the world says is right. For over a century now, really accelerating over the last 30, 40, 50 years, liberal churches have embraced a philosophy of the world. In fact, many churches have simply replaced the gospel message with a substitutionary uh, gospel message with a new gospel that says we can really only find our meaning, our true salvation in life, in trying to fix the problems of the world and do whatever your heart finds to do. Now, why talk about this with John chapter 6 here? Because this is what Jesus is talking about when he says in verse 63, look at your Bible or up here, It is the Spirit, notice the capital S, so we're talking about God, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. Now this is central to understanding all of John 6. This is like the key. If we understand that it is the Spirit of God who gives life and we ask the question then, why is it that the flesh is no help at all? By the way, what is the flesh that this is referring to? It's us. It's our human will. It's our minds, our desires. When I used to argue against reform doctrine, this is one of those passage, passages that quite frankly I avoided. I just couldn't get around this. I couldn't explain it. The flesh, my will, no help at all in saving me. How much help? No help. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? Is Is that clear or not? So look at the capital S again in spirit. That means Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is giving us life. And Jesus says at the end of verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Notice small s spirit there, that we have been given life in the spirit. Jesus' words are the thing God, the Holy Spirit, is using to give us spiritual life, small s spirit. What's the opposite of life? Let's just do a, uh, a little test. What's the opposite of life? Death. Death. Good job. I didn't. If you missed that question, we need to talk. So, before Christ Jesus comes into a person's life, people are naturally dead. Now we don't mean physically dead, do we? But spiritually dead. So get this, write this down. The Bible describes two kinds of life. One is physical life and the other is spiritual life. This is important to understand. The Bible describes two kinds of life and therefore two kinds of death as well. Physical life, And spiritual life. Now in John 6. Jesus is talking about God giving spiritual life to the people. That's what Jesus is talking about. What are we talking about? Is this thing called original sin. It's a doctrine that we we rely on. Now when I bring up the doctrine of original sin. Many people get the wrong idea what we mean. So make sure you're understanding. Sometimes people wrongly think that the doctrine of original sin is that mankind is guilty of the very first sin of Adam that's not what we mean they think when Adam sinned and they he broke God's law command not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and because of that sin God said you're all guilty you're all guilty that that guilty of that sin but that's not really the doctrine of original sin So watch this, watch this. The doctrine of original sin is the nature of mankind's sinful condition because of Adam's fall or Adam's sin. Do you see the difference between the two? The doctrine of original sin is the nature of mankind's sinful condition because of Adam's sin. The doctrine says that all people Born in the line of Adam are corrupted because of Adam's sin. They're not guilty of Adam's sin. They're corrupted. In other words, we're all born into the world with an inability to not sin. We are born into a sinful, fallen world. It's this reason we wrestle with temptation. It's why we sin and we are sinful by nature. And you've heard me say this many times before if you've been here We're not sinners because we sin. We're not. We sin because we are sinners. Do you see the difference? Now, we're born sinners. We lack the ability to not sin. That's the doctrine of original sin right there. Original sin means that our nature has been corrupted by sin. King David had this to say about original sin. Psalm 51 verse 5, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now he's not saying that his mother and father sinned in their physical union, but that he was born into sin nature, just like everyone else. So what is the result of our sin and being born into a sinful world? It's the first doctrine of the doctrines of grace we studied back months ago. We call it radical corruption. Now, many know this doctrine with the title Total Depravity. Here's what it means. You ready? Radical corruption, sin that goes to the core of our humanity and it affects every part of our character and being. Radical corruption. Sin that goes to the core of our humanity, and it affects every part of our character and being. Now, people have used this term, total depravity, to describe this as well. I don't like that term quite as well, because it gives kind of a a vibe or a connotation that I don't think it really represents. They go the wrong way with it. Total depravity does not mean that all people are as evil as they possibly could be. It's not saying like we're all Jeffrey Dahmer or Adolf Hitler or Thanos. Some of you are going, What's Thanos? I go, you're just too old. It's too I'm just too far to rather we, we like to use the term radical corruption because it affects our thinking. Sin affects our hearts, our feelings, our desires, our souls, our judgment, every part, our whole person. That although we're still capable of doing what we might call good things, and not everything we do is evil to the core, it's saying that even the good things that we do are not totally good. Even the good things we do are driven by desires that are not really pure. They're tainted by sin. Now, are you with me on this? Our desires have been corrupted, infected, infected, infected with the poison of sin. And certainly we see people do evil things, don't we? But even evil people can do some good things. Can we agree on that? I mean, Hitler probably gave his mother flowers on her birthday. I mean, even Hitler doesn't mean he was somehow good on the inside. Here's what we have to guard against. It's easy to look at the other person or an evil person and compare ourselves to an evil person and say, well, at least I'm not like him or her or a drug dealer or a prostitute or Stalin or Vladimir Putin. At least I'm not like them. Because if you compare yourself to dudes like that, you and I seem pretty good, don't we? The doctrine of radical depravity teaches that our natural condition is that we are slaves to our sinful, messed up desires. Now, this is key to understanding radical corruption. Because of radical corruption, we have absolutely no desire for Christ Jesus or the holiness of God. Because of radical corruption... We have absolutely no desire for Christ Jesus or for the holiness of God. We're talking about outside of Christianity. A simpler way to say this is we want what we want and we don't want what we don't want. We have desires, or we want what we want and we don't want what God wants. In our fallen condition, We don't want the things of God. We don't want the holiness of God. We read this in Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. (laughs) Or listen to what the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were, say it with me, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin was our very nature, Paul says. Because we are born into a sinful, fallen world with a sinful nature. Here's what Jesus is getting at when he's talking in verse 44 through 46 in John chapter 6. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, there's a debate that's gone on in the church for almost 2,000 years now. On one side, you have good Christians that say to be saved from our sins, we must first decide to follow Jesus, come to him in faith, pray a prayer of salvation for repentance, then God will make us alive and save us. We've all heard that, right? Now, I would argue that is the default view of most Christian believers, believers in America today. And certainly that was my view for probably the first 30 years of my life. Here's the debate I want us to understand because I think it will help us think through this, this debate. If we look at the doctrine of radical corruption or total depravity, what we just studied before now, and we, then we look at this debate. Let me see if I can give you a picture of what this looks like. Let's say that this is Adam before the fall into sin. A big blue circle. He's righteous, meaning he's good, he's holy. No sin, no temptation to sin even. Adam is righteous before he sins. He's 100% righteous or 100% good. And then if we understand that doctrine, we see the doctrine of original sin and then the resulting total depravity after the fall of Adam. He no longer has the desire for the things of God. Not that every inclination is bad, but he dies spiritually. Now, he's a red circle then. He's full sinfulness. Let's say that the red represents sin's poison. Adam is 100% now infected with the poison of sin. Even the so-called good things he does, sin still even affects that. Now how does that apply to us? Well, if we descend from Adam, and we do, we are born into a sinful world, and we are. This is this is us as well. There's nothing left of the blue. It's gone. There's nothing righteous in us. This is before Christ. That's why we need Jesus to come and save us. We can't save ourselves. Amen? Amen? And we have no spiritual life in us even to choose God. Or we could say it like this. Since we are spiritually dead and we only desire what we desire and we don't desire the things of God, so we don't choose him. He chooses us. Or think about it this way. There's some that say we have free will and God does not violate that free will. But here's the thing we need to consider. We are free, yes, to choose the things what? We desire. Did you get that? We are free to choose the things we desire. But if we desire God, if we don't desire God or the things of God, which is what we just read, how would we ever choose him? Because before Christ, we're spiritually dead in sin. Are you with me? It's the difference we've talked about in the words can and may. Review these with me. When we use the word can, it means we have the ability to do something. When we use the word can, it means we have the ability to do something. All right, let's flip that around. When we use the word may, it means we have the permission to do something. When we use the word may, it means we have the permission to do something. Now, when Jesus tells us this, in John six forty four, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. What is Jesus referring to right there? He's talking about ability, right? Would we all agree on that? He's talking about you don't have the ability. You could translate that verse and say, no one has the ability to come to me unless God the Father gives him that ability. And if God gives him that ability, then I will raise him up to life But then we read in John 6 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this is speaking of may, isn't it? We have the permission to believe in Jesus, but not the ability. That's what Jesus clearly says right here. And remember, when we're speaking of ability, we're not talking about physical abilities or inabilities here. We're talking about spiritual life, spiritual inability, a moral inability to come to Christ. So we are simply dead in our sins. We are the red circle, aren't we? That's us, just like Adam. But there are some Christians that see this differently. And I want to be fair to them and their belief. Even though I disagree, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. And they say that the doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption is not really the case. They have described man described a man's fall and original sin this way. They would say mankind did fall into sin, and that through Adam, but it wasn't a total fall. That instead of being unable to connect with God, they said that man's sin affected most of mankind, but not all. They would say that there's still a tiny little island of goodness unaffected by the sinful world. So let's go back to our picture analogy, our circle analogy. If red represents man's corrupted by sin and blue represents the holiness, what is uncorrupted, they would have it like this. They would say at the core of every person, there's a tiny, tiny bit of holiness that's still there, goodness that can recognize God. There's still that tiny island of righteousness that finally can connect to God if they just choose to. And it's with this tiny island of goodness that we can hear the gospel and we connect God and be saved. That's what most Americans believe. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. What they're saying is that every person has both a may and a can. That every person uh, has both the permission and the ability to come to God. That it's up to each person in their free will to choose God or to not choose God. And that God leaves it up to each person to decide if he is going to go to heaven or is going to go to hell. That's how I believed till about 25, almost 30 years ago. I don't believe that doctrine anymore. Lots of good people do. If you believe that kind of doctrine, I don't, I don't want what I'm about to say hurt your feelings or just be argumentative. I don't say it for that at all. I'm not questioning your salvation. The reason I'm teaching, this is what Jesus taught in John chapter 6. It's the main focus of John chapter 6. The reason I teach is I've come to believe that this is the full counsel of God, what I'm about to teach you. Have I believed enough to be saved? Have you ever had that thought? Have I believed enough to be saved? Like, am I still saved? Did I believe enough? Because listen, if you have that kind of doctrine of you choosing God, you'll always wrestle with, can I lose my salvation? Have I believed enough? What if my circle is all red and there's nothing good in me? Will Jesus still save me if I've gone too far into sin? I know those questions. You know how I know them? Because I've asked every one of them. But here's what I realize if I, as I've read the words of Jesus here in John 6. And as we've gone through it together, it's even reinforced it. Look here in Romans 3 verse 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Notice (laughs) it doesn't say there's still a little good part in every heart. It doesn't say at the core of every person or even some people, there's a good person there and if they would only believe, then God could be allowed to save them. Here's the realization I came to. For whatever reason, God chose me and saved me because he loved me, not that he saw something good in me. He called me to life by what Christ Jesus did on the cross. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John fifteen sixteen He says. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask of Father in my name. He may give it to you. Now folks. This should settle all debate instantly, instantly. Jesus doesn't mince words at all. He chooses us, not the reverse. We do not choose Jesus. I mean, how do you argue with Jesus saying this? He's, he's really, really, really clear. Now think about the order of salvation with me. For me, I believed I was baptized I repented of my sins, but I did that, Why? because God brought me to life. Do you see the difference between the two schools of thought? Are you following me? Let's do a little history for just a moment. You know me, I love history. We talk about the Reformation here at Bentry because we think the church should always be reforming, always going back to the Bible, always going, what have we taught that's not biblical? The Reformation started over 500 years ago. This rediscovery of biblical gospel clearly taught by Jesus in the gospels is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Guys like Martin Luther, Heidrich Zwingli, John Knox, John Calvin, and the Reformation is huge. It's a turning point for history for sure. Sometimes we'll, we'll have to talk about this. But listen to me. You're not going to believe me until I tell you the whole story. But even the United States would not exist in its current form without the Reformation. The belief of the Reformation is what created the United States. Now, I think this is huge. In fact, if you look at my Jeep afterwards, where it says Rubicon on a lot of it, I took that sticker off, I put Reformation. Back in the days... When the reformers studied scriptures, they realized that the Roman Catholic Church that had all been a part of, they had all been a part of, had slowly developed a false doctrine of grace. And it was grace that was not grace alone that saved us. They taught, and the Roman Catholic Church still teaches to this day a doctrine that believes a person can only be saved through grace plus your works to earn your salvation. By the way, that's why we, call, we are called Protestants. We protest that. We are Protestants against that. We believe our salvation is through Christ alone. Amen? We are saved by the grace of God alone. As I've studied this over the years, I was always fascinated. This doctrine had been the doctrine for years and years and years and years. It didn't begin with the Reformation 500 years ago. They simply rediscovered it. Then the doctrine is in the Bible and they begin to reform the church back to the Bible. Sometimes people like to call us Calvinist because John Calvin, one of the reformers 500 years ago, wrote so clearly about the doctrine. But Calvin wasn't the first or even an earlier adopter of reformed reformed doctrine. It's as old as scripture is itself. Now we can go back to church history to the early 300s with guys like St. Augustine of the Bishop of Hippo that taught the same reformed doctrine. And he defended against guys like Pelagius who claimed that the fall of Adam into sin didn't affect us at all. That we are sinless at birth and we all choose sin. But we're basically good. We look at that heresy, we'll look at that another time in death. But even back in that first, second, third centuries, guys like Augustine were going back to scripture and reforming the church. Here's something exciting. I mean this. We are beginning to see a new reformation going on across the world today. People are reclaiming orthodox Christian teaching and not some Americanized version of the gospel. Once again, guys are discovering this core doctrine of what Jesus has taught here in John 6 and all through the Bible. That we see our inability to choose God and therefore save ourselves. We are rediscovering that God is sovereign. So what about folks that believe that they can choose God before he chooses us? Here are problems with that doctrine. First, you'll never find a scripture in all of the Bible that says pray a prayer of salvation to God and then he'll save you. You just won't find that. A scripture like that simply does not exist. Second, even if that were somehow an option and we prayed a prayer to be saved or a decision we make before God can save us, that would make our salvation at least partially tiny bit, something that we could earn. Like if the spirit doesn't regenerate us first and then we pray a prayer and then God decides, okay, he's good to go. He finally prayed, we can save him now. We're claiming that we can figure it out if we think that way, that we can figure it out. Like we were clever enough to pray and ask God to save us before he chose us. Here's the deal. If God does 99% of the work and we do 1%, then our salvation is a synergistic work of salvation. We call that synergism. Synergism is cooperation of God and man in order to produce saving faith. This is what the Catholic Church believes. Synergism, cooperation of God and man in order to produce saving faith. In synergistic or synergism doctrine, we are saying that God can't save someone without the individual person doing at least some of the work in praying a prayer of salvation. And we know that our salvation is what is a work of God alone. Salvation is always what we call salvation monergistic. Write this down. Monergism. God alone works in order to produce saving faith. God alone works in order to produce saving faith. Consider this with me. The reformers held to a doctrine called the five solas. That's simply Latin So here it is. These five solos distinguish the reformers from the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. It still does. The Roman Catholic Church does not hold to these five. Roman Catholicism teaches against monergism and what I'm about to teach you here. Let's take a look at these briefly. Notice how these flow from one to another. Here are the Latin and then the English translation. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Now, this is key to understand. In our question of how do we look and examine and understand our salvation, our relationship with God, we always begin with Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. Because it's only Scripture that is God's truth. Not that there are no other truths in any other text outside. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is that the Bible is absolute truth. Somebody say amen. Amen. So we measure everything else, every other truth claim against it. It is our measuring stick of truth. It is our plumb line for you carpenters and fix-it men to the truth claims. Using scripture alone, the reformers found this truth. Salvation is found only then in Christ alone. Sola Christus. That's the Latin. Christ alone. Now watch how these flow together from one to the next to the next. In Christ alone, there is no other name under heaven by what men can be saved. Because it is only the meritorious work of Christ, Jesus, that can earn salvation. That Christ comes to earth, truly God, taking on the flesh of mankind, they're becoming a truly a man, one man, two natures. Only Christ in his nature of man could represent us to God, take away our sin debt we owe, die in our place. And it is only Christ as God that he could represent God then to us so that God could forgive us. So if Christ is the only way to God, then the reformers found that salvation is only through solo fide. Faith alone. Faith alone. Solo fide. faith alone. Now you tracking? This is key to understand faith. Because of our spiritual, I'm sorry, our sinful condition, our spiritual death, because of original sin, that we are born into this fallen world, we don't possess faith on our own. Not saving faith. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is... This, talking about faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now look, we are saved by grace but through faith. Faith is a conduit, if you will, that, that grace arrives to us. And check this out. When it says, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, that is referring to faith, saving faith, being given to us as a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't have it on your own. And then in verse nine, when it says, not a result of work so that no man may boast, no one, nothing you can do can earn salvation. Even even your prayer of salvation Even your decision, you can't say, well, look what I did. Salvation is from God alone. So we can't say, look what I was able to figure out, and now God can be allowed to save me. When Jesus says five different times in John 6, he says this. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That the Father who has sent the Son has given some deserving hell. Eternal separation. He's given them life. Then Jesus finally says in verse 65, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now this is key, key, key to remember. Our salvation of being brought to life at the direction of the Father by the work of the Son on the cross, by the power of the Holy Spirit coming on you and giving you life, is a work of God alone. We didn't cause it. We didn't initiate it. We call that our regeneration. Jesus calls it being born again, our being brought to life in Christ, our justification before God. But what people often, often, often get confused about is this this thing called our conversion, our realization of our regeneration in Christ that we go, we realize, Jesus, you are the Son of God. That's our conversion. That is what leads us to following Jesus as our Savior. It's our conversion. It's our changing of teams. Our salvation is not caused by our decision to follow Jesus. We decide to follow Jesus because he saved us. The same with repentance, baptism, the rest of our life as we follow Christ. Those things don't cause our salvation They are a result of our being brought to life in Christ. So, if faith is given to us to believe and then faith is not ours naturally due to us being dead in our sin, but God is giving us that gift, then we see our salvation is through. You see it. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Faith delivers grace. Sola gratia. Faith delivers grace. Here it is. Grace alone. My beloved church family, this is what grace is. The forgiveness of our sin and the righteousness of Christ being given to us, not because what we do or even our decision, but that it is a free gift of God alone. Because even if... 0.0000001% 0.0000001% of our salvation is up to us to save ourselves. We can, we can take credit for that little part. Then it's not grace. Then we earned our salvation. That's why God does it the way he does it. Because of this last thing. Solo Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Do you see how these flow together? Glory to To God alone means you can't take credit for it. And neither can I. Not even a tiny, tiny bit. That you were lost, dead in your sin. But Christ loved you and called you to life. You believed and changed teams. God gets all the glory for saving them. Not most of the glory. Now and forever, God gets the glory for saving us. Amen? So, it's why you see so many people in tears in their times of worship and singing and prayer. Because we realize that it wasn't us that had anything to do with our salvation. We know that we were wretched, lost, unworthy. A worm. And yet, like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.8, watch this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in other words, while we were still dead, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received reconciliation. I've said this for weeks now. Listen, listen, listen. Please get this. What we just saw here is that our salvation is from God alone, through Christ alone, by the Spirit of God alone. We cannot take credit for it. But hear me. Just because we are saved by grace alone. Does not mean. That grace is alone. <laughs> Don't mean to confuse you. Watch this. Remember that there are two truths that we have seen. In John 6. All the way. Right? When we are justified. By Christ. And brought to life. Born again. We will always believe. Always. Always. It is the railroad track analogy that I've shown you. Two rails that go side by side. Seemingly, they don't go together, but we find them in Scripture that our salvation comes from God and we must believe. Now, our belief comes from being made alive in Christ. We must believe. It is our conversion. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. It can't be the other way around. Scripture won't let us think that salvation is a work of God alone and then we believe but we must believe to be saved let's look back at John 6 about what Jesus said about our belief and the necessity of it John 6 29 the second half of verse 29 this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent now read that again with me This is the work of God that you believe in him. It doesn't say this is your work that God accepts. Do you see the difference? It is the work of God alone that you believe in him who he is sent. Look at verse 35 then. Second half. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do You see the, the urgency of our believing? Jesus tells us that we must believe in him as Christ, as the son of God. He tells us four times in this chapter. Well, I'm telling you, we could go on in chapter six. We could do weeks and weeks more. And you know, I'm telling the truth there. But let's wrap up our time with a story an analogy to think about what we just said. And then for our folks that are getting baptized, uh, if you want to get ready here in just a minute, we'll have you come over here. Uh, There'll be time to do that as I pray at the end of this. But let me just tell you a story first before you begin to move. Just a hint, I'm going to tell you three versions of the story. Only one of them is the right one. Let's say a man is out swimming in the ocean. He's having a good time, some beautiful days swimming. A boat comes by. Suddenly a life preserver is thrown, lands right next to him. They say, grab a hold of the life preserver and you can be saved. Well, the guy's swimming. He's not drowning or anything. He thinks, okay. So he grabs a hold of the life preserver. They pull him to the boat. He's saved. But he wasn't drowning. Now let's change the story. Let's say the man now is out in the ocean. He's swimming, but he's drowning. Let's say he's drowning, he's floundering because he really can't swim. The waves are crashing over him. He's gasping for breath as the waves are beginning to just cover his head. He's got water up his nose. He's gasping. Suddenly there's a ship. It pulls up right near the man and the crew throws him a life preserver with a rope tied to it. And the man just at the last second with just a tiny bit of ability he has holds on to the life preserver and he's pulled to safety. I think most Christians have this view of Jesus saving us. That if we'll just grab a hold of the gospel, it will save us. I used to believe that one. But I don't know. There's a third picture. There's no man swimming. The man has long since drowned and sunk to the bottom. His body is blue and lifeless. The ship comes to where the man has, has gone down. It pulls up alongside. They don't throw a life preserver in. The captain strips off his shirt. And he dives in and he swims down to the dead man. And he grabs him and brings him up. He lays him on the deck. The man is blue. He's lifeless. So he presses his chest and he puts his mouth onto the dead man's mouth and he breathes life back into him. His heart starts beating again. The man takes a breath. That's the picture of the gospel. Do you see the difference? It's not that we decided to somehow get saved. We were dead. We had no ability, but Jesus rescued us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think of all of this, of our inability, and that your love for us, and that while we were your enemies, when we were ready to fight against you, to spit in your face, you gave us life you sent your son to die on the cross. As you just continue to pray right now, in just a moment, we're gonna have baptism. Baptism is a thing we do as a picture of repentance. It's a physical sign we do for an inward change that's happened, to show that inward change. That the old dead us is buried underneath the waves. But the Savior raises a new us and gives us life. Are you wondering if you're saved? Listen to me. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, if you have trusted Him as your Savior, this is what we're talking about. Convert. Repent of your sins. You have been given life. You wouldn't even have that thought unless you had the Holy Spirit breathing life into you. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you've not been one, but you're believing now, would you just look up here for just a second? That's That sound you hear, that's the kids coming in and they're getting ready to see the baptism. Change teams. Here's what changing teams means. You say, Jesus, I'm really screwed up. You can have all my scrubs. Would you forgive me of my sin? Listen, your sin's gone. You say this, help me to follow you, Jesus, in all that you're calling me to do. Pray that. Show me how to walk. and pray this thank you for saving me Jesus this right here what we just said that is the whole picture right there of conversion you're saved now the next step is to be baptized if you prayed a prayer if you just decided that if you changed teams after our gathering at the end we'll have those elders up here you can come talk to them They'll tell you how to get signed up for baptism, all of that. We like to meet with people before they're baptized to go, here's what you're doing. Do you understand? Answer any questions that they have. You've seen all of that here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to a time of seeing what baptism means, just a physical demonstration of your grace, would you speak to the people right now, including me? Show us who you are, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentree Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.